Today we're going to be reading in Mark chapter 10, 13 through 22, and on the, in the blue Bibles on the back of the chairs, it's page 493 through 494. If you don't have a Bible at home, please feel free to take one of these with you. <clears throat> Hear the word of the Lord. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the di- disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was ignorant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For such, for, no, to, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not inherit it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was set, setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Thus says God's word. Let's pray over what we've heard. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you um, for the, the path that it lays out before us, that it illuminates before us, God showing us how to walk wisely and not be a fool. And so, Lord, we ask that you would not let us be lulled to sleep by familiar passages, but, Lord, that you would break them open for us and let us see the treasure that you've hidden inside, God. Let us see the truth radiating from these verses and not the truth as it applies to our neighbor, but the truth as it applies to we ourselves. God, I ask that you would be with me this morning as I uh, try to communicate effectively and faithfully this word. I pray that I would do so in a way that brings honor to you, in a way that pleases you, in a way that is not relying in any way on my own strength, but leaning heavily on the power of the Holy Spirit to do so. God, I pray for my audience. I pray that they would have supernatural ability to hear, to examine themselves and to respond to your word. And that they, in responding to your word, they would find in Peter's words, joy unspeakable and full of glory. And I ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. I, uh, before, if you'll allow me to, I want to just make a couple of quick announcements, just let you know a couple of things before I begin. Um, first of all, I want to tell you, I should have done this last week, and I, it just completely slipped my mind. But two weeks ago, we received our missions offering for the the, uh, the quarter. Um, every quarter, as we tell you, we receive a $6,000 offering, um, and people usually give throughout that quarter. And once again, we not only met, but exceeded our offering. Everything over what uh, we uh, collected is going to go towards the next quarter. So just wanted to tell you very 
very much. Thank you for your generosity. Um, the the uh, checks have already been signed, sent, and are in the hands of our uh, missionaries. I've heard from a couple of them uh, with their personal thanks that they wanted me to communicate to you. So thank you so much for your generosity in that. Um, second, I wanted to just let you know um, of a great event that we have coming up. Uh, for Northridge Life. Generally, every, uh, the, the Sunday immediately preceding Thanksgiving, we have, uh, our, our big potluck through the year. It's, it's our biggest one. Uh, we usually, the church will buy some turkeys and get some of you to, uh, to provide those. Well, I have a friend, a pastor friend in town, who, uh, contacted me and a couple of other pastors and said, why don't we, uh, demonstrate the unity of the body of Christ, the fellowship of believers, by doing that event, but adding a time of worship to it and doing it all together? And I thought, that was a fantastic idea. So uh, because of the size of our facility, we're going to be meeting on uh, November 20th at uh, First Baptist Church in Wolferth. And um, uh, we can get you the, the address for that. Um, but uh, uh, we're asking just like you would come, just as though we were just having it here, bring uh, you know potluck items. We have a sign-up sheet in the foyer that you can sign up and, and uh, uh, get ready to let us know. What we're asking for most specially is we would love for about six of you um, who are willing to do it um, to prepare a turkey for us. Now, you don't have to buy the turkey. We'll buy the turkey. We'll deliver it to your house. And um, But if you can do that um, for all of this stuff, just so we know we have enough, um, we need to know sooner rather than later. So if you could let me know even today that you need a turkey, um, that would be really helpful. And you can also put that on the sign-up sheet. But even we need to know the sign-up. We want to make sure that we have plenty of food for everyone who comes. And and we're not responsible for providing for all four churches. Everyone else is going to bring stuff too. So anyway, if you would uh, just let us know as soon as possible, that'd be great. All right. The more important business at hand is the Word of God. So in our series on Mark... Last week, we talked about how Jesus uh, had the Pharisees come up to him and they, they asked him a question, a hot button issue question about the matter of divorce. They wanted to know what Jesus was teaching, what Jesus's position was on the boundaries regarding divorce and how divorce uh, you know, functioned and, and, and what God's view of it was. And Jesus, as you would expect, answered them very wisely. But sometime after Jesus had corrected the Pharisees' view of divorce, we read of the parents who bring their children to Jesus in the hopes that he would touch them, that he would lay his hands on them. Now, the laying of hands in the religion of the Jews was a significant sign. It was practiced often, usually by the priests, as they were offering the sacrifices of the people to God. But if you'll recall, everything we've talked about in the book of Mark so far, we've also seen Jesus on multiple occasions lay his hands on people uh, as, as his method, his chosen means for them to receive miraculous healing. Now, in this text, it's interesting when we compare it to all those other texts, because there is no indication in this text that the children that were being brought to Jesus were sick or injured in any way. It seems that, and I love this, but it seems that the parents who were bringing their children to Jesus were moved by the love 
that they had seen freely flowing out of him. And, and, and so they brought their children to him for the impartation of some spiritual blessing, even if they could not exactly say what it was. that The, the blessing for them might have been love or power or goodness, but they, they wanted that to be communicated to their children, not from afar by a word, but by a touch, by Christ literally receiving their children in his hands. But, in the story that Terry just read for us, you see that as they came seeking blessing from the Lord, they were met by the disciples, who in this particular instance were acting as Jesus' bodyguards, his security detail. Now, if you know... The Jesus that Mark has presented us to, uh, has presented to us so far, you'll know that the last thing Jesus needed was a security detail. But, but th- that's what they were acting at and, and so acting as. And so as these parents came, they rebuked sharply. The, the, the word there in the Greek is very strong. They rebuked these poor parents and they told them, they said, listen, lady, these, the, this, our teacher is way too important. He's way too busy to deal with your bunch of snot-nosed little kids. Now, that was their attitude. And the, the, the language again here, it, it's the word paideon. And paideon speaks not just of like, as you usually see in the paintings of this event, of 8-year-olds and 10-year-olds, but, but mostly that he was being brought little itty-bitty babies, infants, up to, there's probably some children there too, but the twelve's response to to this this uh, desire on behalf of the parents is shocking. Why would I say that it's shocking? Well, if you've been with us for a few weeks, you'll remember that in the very last chapter, chapter nine of Mark, Jesus had told those same disciples these words. He said, "Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me." And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. How quickly have we seen over and over again that the disciples are prone to forget what their master has taught them. Now, before we wag our fingers from 2,000 years away, how easy is it for you and I to forget what our master has taught us? But before the parents could shuffle away dejectedly with their children, Jesus hears what the disciples are saying, and the text tells us that he becomes indignant. This word is loaded with emotion. It, it, his rebuke of his disciples was given in such a way that it would be, have been impossible for anyone present to uh, have not picked up on Jesus' displeasure at what just happened. This was a sharp rebuke that was delivered to the disciples. And he says this in his rebuke. He says, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them. See, Jesus was saying to the disciples, Do not dare to put up barriers between me and these children. Jesus wanted the children, the little kids, to be able to freely come to him and to benefit from his touch, regardless of their helplessness, 
Regardless of their lack of social standing, Jesus wanted these kids to be blessed by himself. See, the twelve had completely misunderstood who it is that Jesus is interested in, who it is that Jesus is attracted to. We see over and over again in Mark's gospel that it's those who are despised, those who are helpless, and those who are devoid of cultural or societal bargaining chips. He was showing them that his blessing is accessible to those who come to him empty-handed, those who come destitute, those who, as he says in Matthew, are the least of these, those who are like these little children. And he gives his reason in the last part of verse 14 for to, to such as these belongs the kingdom of heaven. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, there's two things that Jesus is not saying in this passage. Jesus is not saying that children are automatically enrolled in heaven, and he is also not encouraging his followers to act in a childish way. The difference, the differences uh, between childishness and childlikeness are vast. He's saying that only people who come by faith to him, those who have no confidence in themselves, whether they're young or old, are eligible to receive the kingdom of God. Now, little babies are the perfect analogy of faith. Now, I have just recently been the recipient of a nuclear payload of cuteness in my life in the form of my granddaughter, Talitha, who, if you haven't seen her, is clearly the most beautiful baby ever born of woman. So... Um, clearly, I mean, you know, there's very little, uh, I, I'm not biased. I just, I'm convinced of that. I love Talitha. I love to hold Talitha. I love to hear her little squeaky voice. Even her cries are adorable to me. But there's something about Talitha. We pour out, you know, Ginger and I, her parents, have, have poured out all kinds of money and time and effort and emotion on her. And I hate to tell you this, but she hasn't really reciprocated. I mean, this this little child that I love so much does not even make any effort to feed herself. She doesn't do any of it. She'll make a huge mess, and I think you know what I'm talking about. Never once have I seen her even try to clean herself up. She, you know, she'll get cranky at the end of a long, you know, few hours and... And she won't even go get in bed by herself. She has to have someone carry her to put her in bed. And for all her needs, what the way she responds to every single one of her needs right now is she cries out. She, she shouts, she cries, she makes this noise. And, and she does so because she's learning that she can trust a loving mother 
and a loving father to hear her and to meet her needs. Are you drawing any connections here? See any lines being drawn here? See, life in Jesus is the same as being a little baby. Now, even when I say that now, some of you might go, oh, that doesn't sound very appealing to me. And that's why you have not yet entered into the kingdom of heaven. Because when you are one of God's children, you're like little Talitha. You're aware of your need, your need for forgiveness, your need for life, your need for joy, your need for grace, your need for holiness, your need for healing, your need for deliverance, your need for heaven itself. But you're utterly helpless on your own to meet those needs. But faith, what faith is when it's real, it means we're joyful and we're confident, however, because we know that our cries are being heard and that help is on its way from Jesus himself. No word describes the Christian life better than the word dependent. It's the dependent little children of God who receive the kingdom of God. It's given to them at no cost, given to them out of the immense reservoir that is the love of God. And the conclusion of this story finds the little children that were brought and rebuked and and called back by Jesus, they're receiving that which they came to Christ for in the first place. Mark uh, 10 verse 16 says, And he took them in his arms and blessed them. And and laying his hands on them, he brought them close. He brought them close. He communicated life. He communicated union. He communicated fellowship to them by his words and his touch. And here's the good news, ladies and gentlemen, 21st century Northridge Life Church. Here's the good news. That's still exactly how he communicates union and fellowship and love. He does it, he does it with his words by those that he's given to us in the holy book, the, the word of God, the Bible. And he does it with his touch by giving us the, the presence, ever present Holy Spirit to be with us. His words and his touch are still with us as we, as we trust in him. And the story of Christ blessing children, you might have noticed, serves as a sharp contrast to the story that follows it. Mark says that immediately after this incident with the children, as Jesus resumed his journey south and west towards Jerusalem, a man ran urgently toward him. And he fell to his knees before him and he asked him a question. He said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now it would appear that by reverently bowing before Jesus and even acknowledging Jesus as a good teacher that this man has the right attitude. He is deferring to Christ and his and his superiority. He wasn't like the Pharisees who had just accosted Jesus with loaded questions in order to test and to tempt him. He's, he's showing respect. He's showing honor. But John tells us something interesting about Jesus in John chapter 2. He says that Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to man. Because he knew all people, 
and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And so what does this tell us about Jesus in this instance? It means that Jesus was never swayed by either sincere or insincere displays of homage or flattery from flawed and sinful people. Jesus was not swayed by those things. And Jesus proves that he doesn't confuse this man's actions or his words with true worship, with genuine worship, when he answers the man's question with a question of his own. Picture the scene. The man falls to his face. He looks at Jesus. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus looks him right in the eyeballs and says, Why do you call me good? There is no one good except God alone. See, Jesus' emphasis, when we read that, there's a lot of people that, that will say, look at this, and I'll say, oh, see, Jesus never claimed to be God. He was separating himself from God in this passage. No, 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 you're missing the entire point. Jesus, many times, in other places, clearly equated himself with God. What's happening in this passage? See, Jesus' emphasis is not on the word good. He's not saying, why do you call me good? I'm not good. Why do you call me good? That's not what he's saying. His emphasis is on the word you. Why do you call me good? What is the motive of your heart? He isn't denying that he is either good or that he is God. He's probing the man to see if the man understands the true character of the one that is standing before him. See, many people think that Jesus is good. Oprah thinks Jesus is good. But she doesn't obey or follow him. People may think that Jesus is wise. Or he's inspiring. But to stop short of acknowledging that Christ is God is to stop short of being a true Christian. You cannot call yourself a believer if you don't believe in the essential element of the deity of Jesus Christ. And because he's God, you better believe he's good. And Jesus reminds the man that no one is good but God alone. The man thought that Christ was good because of these works that he was doing. But Jesus wanted to see that that his goodness wasn't the byproduct of external works. Jesus wanted him to see that he was, Jesus was, the original goodness. He was the very essence, the very definition of everything that's good. Getting back to the man's question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I want you to see that this question is universal to all of humanity. Every culture in every time is on a religious pursuit to find peace with something they understand as God or through the acquisition of a higher life or a higher plane of existence. Even atheists, you might think, well, that doesn't apply to atheists. It absolutely applies to atheists. Atheists try to do the same thing that the rest of, you know, the unwashed pagans and heathens are doing by denying the supernatural reality that is printed on creation and even on the insides of their souls. And, and, and they place all of their trust, they do so religiously in science and in reason. But science does way more to prove God than it could ever do to disprove Him. 
And the testimony of every man's conscience of God's existence screams so loudly that it can only be suppressed by diligent hard work of unbelief. Suppressing the truth in unbelief is what Romans says. And Buddhists and Mormons and Catholics and Hindus and Muslims and every other religious group on earth has formulated various various answers to this same question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And all of their answers in one form or another involve human beings searching for God, hoping to find God. But Christianity, what you've got to understand, folks, is Christianity is radically different. If you go to share the gospel on tech campus, you'll, you'll find a, a, a bunch of students who will tell you that, that, you know, ah, oh, you can put all these religions the, the same, they have the same origin and, and that, you know, they're basically the same religion with different names and it doesn't take 15 minutes of a little bit of research to find out that is completely false. Completely false. Christianity is completely different from every other world religion. How so? Because it teaches that you and I are so alienated from God that we could never find Him in a trillion years. But it gets worse. Even if it were possible to find Him, we could never live in such a way to either please Him or appease Him. And complicating our predicament even further... The Bible goes on to say that none of us are really interested in seeking God at all. The young man might seem to contradict that fact. He comes to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But the Bible teaches that sin has made it so none of us would seek God in the way that he has prescribed. The young man <laughs> wants to know, his, his, his primary concern is what can he do He doesn't care about what has been done or what can be done for him. He wants to know how he can sit in the driver's seat, how he can take the reins, be in control. He has a narrow, narrow, narrow view of his deepest need. He wants to know what kinds of works he can do to inherit eternal life. And he's completely unaware that eternal life is just out of his reach. But more than that, his words are inconsistent. Have you ever noticed this? What he said, the the way he phrases his question? He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But no one does anything for an inheritance. An inheritance is a gift that's granted to someone when someone else dies. An heir is the benefactor of someone else who worked to gain something and died in order to pass it along to a pre-selected recipient. Effort on its own does not earn an inheritance. In the case of the Pharisees' question about divorce, you'll recall that Jesus referred them back to the writings of Moses. Well, here also, Jesus assumes that this young man is aware of what Moses has written specifically in the Ten Commandments. So Jesus tells him in verse 19, you know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your mother and father. And upon hearing this, the man is so relieved. Oh, thank God. Thank God that's all I got to do. I'm a great Jew. I've memorized the Ten Commandments since I was a little bitty boy and I've grown up meticulously observing them. 
He gleefully tells Jesus that he has kept all of these commandments since he was a little boy and he's kept them rigorously. But can you imagine that it's possible that perhaps he might be a little hasty in his assessment of his perfect law-keeping? See, Paul says that before he knew Christ, he was blameless regarding the righteousness that was required in God's law. And what he's talking about there is outward actions. Because elsewhere he says that God's law also highlighted the poison of covetousness, last commandment, resting undisturbed in his soul. He's saying, I had all the appearances of perfect righteousness, but there was a corruption lying deep within me. Furthermore, the man said he kept his command, the, the commandments from his youth. He must have considered himself of a higher spiritual status than King David, who said of himself that he was born in iniquity, that his mother conceived him with a sinful nature. He didn't really know himself very well at all, did he? My greatest fear in the church today is that many of us sit here week in, week out, and they hear the messages, you do all the Christian stuff, but you really don't know yourself very well. And that's a terrifying thought. The problem wasn't that there was no evidence of his spiritual lack. It, 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 the problem was he just didn't examine himself closely under the microscope, the microscope of God's word to know who he really was. See, the Bible is a great book. It not only tells us who God is, but you will never know who you really are until you encounter yourself in God's word. It's God's word that tells us who we really are. Amen. Before he knew Christ, Paul wanted to measure his sin and righteousness, as I said, by outward actions. But the law and Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount points to the corrupt motives and intentions of our hearts. The anger, the lust, the pride that that tarnishes all of our outward shows of righteousness. There's something else I want you to notice here about Jesus bringing him back to the commandments. If you know the Ten Commandments, you'll notice that Jesus quoted the last six commandments to this young man. This is called the second table of the law. And these are those which deal with our relationship to others. Don't steal, don't murder. But Jesus, in, in asking the young man, reminding the young man of the commandments, what did he leave out? He left out the first four that deal with our relationship to God. And this is where his his point of exposure will be, where he will expose what is really lying in this young man's heart. But before he does, and this is an important parenthesis, this is an important pause in the text, Mark adds a detail that the other two uh, synoptic gospel writers don't state. In verse 21, he says, And Jesus, looking at this man, loved him. Let that sink in for just a little bit. This guy's a hot mess. And Jesus loves him. See, everything Jesus says, even when it exposes our inner pollution, and I might even say especially 
when it exposes our inner pollution is for the purpose of showing that verse we all know in John 3.16. It's true that God so loved the world that he gave his son. See, he gave Christ to us to draw us, to call us, to correct us, to inform us, to comfort for us, to comfort us, to provide for us, to discipline us. And all of this was motivated by his love for a fallen creation. It's easy to disconnect Jesus from the love that drives him. It's easy to imagine him as just some wise old sage, some purveyor of proverbs and principles. And not the one who invites us to share in his love and in his life through the actions of repentance and faith. And the loving Savior looks at this misguided young man and tells him that even with his presumption of moral perfection, he's still lacking the one thing that it will take for him to inherit eternal life. And he looks at the man and he says, Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. It's important to note that on the surface, this was not a universal command. There are people that have for years, 2,000 years, tried to apply this to everybody that the definition of Christianity is selling everything you have, all your worldly possessions, and um, giving it to the poor. That is not what Jesus is saying here. He's not telling everyone to sell their possessions for the benefit of the poor. What he's doing is he's honing in on the one thing that's keeping this man from inheriting the kingdom. And what is that? His wealth, his status, his self-perception? But in another sense, even though I would never say that that's a universal command, in another sense, it is absolutely universal. And what do I mean by that? I, I, I want to warn you, as you're, as you're progressing in the Christian life, let me warn you that Jesus will always demand the one thing. Jesus will look at us and in holy honesty will look at us and say, One thing you lack. Give it up. He's talking about that one idol that our grasping hands keep from him. See, because Jesus refuses to be co-God with another person or thing. He won't be assistant God. He won't be assistant to the regional God. He will have all of who you are. Or he will not accept any of who you are. No one's getting into heaven 75%. May I say that one more time? Nobody is getting into heaven 75%. But this requirement that seems so heavy, so dramatic, was coupled with a tremendous promise. This rich man was promised other treasure. Treasure in heaven. And when we consider heavenly treasures versus earthly treasures, we got to realize heavenly treasures are always a trade-up. They're always a trade-up. You're trading your old beat-up 86 Civic for a brand new Escalade. It's a trade-up. How often, seriously, let's pause there for a second and think about 
how what we are promised to gain versus what we're called to give up. What, how often do you think about the vast difference between those two comparisons? We as a people tend to mourn earthly losses. We talk about them, we gripe about them, we post about them on Facebook and Twitter. But we ignore the promise of heavenly gain. Jesus earlier in Matthew warned us about this very thing. He said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. That's what this young man was doing. Why not? Because that's where moth and rust destroy. It's where thieves break in and steal your stuff. But Jesus encourages us, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Because unlike those corruptible things that get destroyed by moths and rust and are, and are taken from us by thieves or the government. Paul said, or Jesus says that neither there do moth nor rust destroy. The things that are transient, passing away, fading here are eternal, concrete, irremovable there. No thieves break in and steal. No one's cracking that security code to rob from God's vault. Jesus told the man that the price of this treasure that he was being offered was simply this, a new evaluation of things. He wanted him to know what truly has value and what doesn't. And I'm telling you, the epidemic of the world, the thing that has caused more heartache in this world than anything else, is the false assessment of value to things that have no value. And the complete denial of the rich eternal value of things that do. We have no Ability in our fallen nature to assess value. But praise God, Jesus has come and He's saying, I'm going to show you what's valuable. The indication that this man understood what was at stake would be seen if he would abandon everything else. If he would give up all his wealth stockpiling pursuits and follow Christ. You cannot call yourself a Christian if you have not changed directions. You can't pursue the same things. You can't love the same things. You can't cling to the same things if you are a Christian. It has to change. Not to lesser things, not to vows of poverty, but to holy things. Things that are eternal. Things that matter. Things that last. Things that please God. And bring genuine joy to you. Well, I like happy endings. And this story doesn't have one. It has a tragic epilogue. Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, the man went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. 
I think when this text speaks of great possessions, we can assume safely that it's speaking of more than his financial wealth, which I'm assuming was vast. See, Matthew tells us that he was a young man. Perhaps in his youthful vigor, he thought that he had all the time in the world. Those of us on this side of 50 don't usually have that luxury. Perhaps he thought, because Luke tells us that he was a ruler, he thought the shame of giving up power and the wealth that accompanied ruling just seemed too high a cost. The Bible tells us he was disheartened, and the Greek word translated as disheartened in this passage means so much more than he's bummed out. It means that he was distraught, he was grieved, he was uneasy, he was offended. He may have thought Jesus had a lot of nerve to make the cost of eternal life so high. He may have been wealthy and powerful, but let me make it very clear that the one thing that he clearly was not was wise. This man was a fool. By every definition of the book of Proverbs, this man was a fool. In January of 1956, 15 years before my own birth, Jim Elliott, who is one of my missionary heroes, and four of his companions were martyred by the Aka Indians of the Ecuadorian rainforest. And Jim Elliott was discovered after his death that years before he had written in one of his journals these words. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. If this young man had listened to Christ, just done what Jesus had said, he would have left with all he'd come looking for, and no one could have taken it from him. See, he may have been rich, but he had no idea how to negotiate the best deal with God. He never saw the deepest goodness in the salvation of the good teacher. Is there a message in this passage today for you? If you open the words of Scripture and begin to examine yourself like this foolish man failed to do, do you find that you are like a little child who has to cling to Christ for your very existence? Are you totally dependent upon Him? Or are you trusting in the leaky life raft of your wealth, your wisdom, your power, your status, or anything else? Are you willing to ask Him, Hey, Jesus, what is it that I'm clinging to? Open my eyes to see it. What is it? What is my one thing? What is the thing that has the potential to keep you out of the kingdom of God? And what's keeping you from following Him, changing directions, going in another path? Are you willing to obediently 
lay whatever that one thing is down for real lasting treasure that nothing can ever take from you. Would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, I do ask that you would vindicate your word, Lord, by searching our hearts today, that you would examine us, Lord, and God, help us to have the sensitivity to hear your voice say one thing you lack, to hear what it is, to pry open our grasp and to lay it down, to forsake it and to follow you, God. Because nothing is worth you. Treasures in heaven, God, are not streets of gold. They're not pearly gates and angel choirs. You are the treasure in heaven, God. You are what we desire We say with the psalmist, psalmist, who have I in heaven but you? Lord, help us to see you as the great treasure to be pursued. The great treasure to which we must cling. And not walk away sorrowful and offended and disheartened but to walk away with joy, having found the pearl of great price. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today, as we come to the Lord's Supper, I'm going to ask our our, um, communion helpers to come and and, uh, approach the table now. But as we come, we want to um, just remember that this is a covenant renewal uh, ordinance. This is a sacrament of renewing the covenant. And, and let me kind of put that into terms and context of today's message. This is our way of saying to our Lord, there is nothing that is worth clinging to besides you. I come to this table because I want you. You, God, are my one thing. And so let's uh, let's uh, come and, and receive the elements, and uh, in a moment we'll, we'll take them together after you return to your seats. The Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's partake of the cup. Now can we pray together and just give thanks for this 
blessing and gift. Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus. That no truer words were ever spoken, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believed in him would not perish, but have eternal life, eternal treasure. And so, Lord, we loosen our grip, we drop behind us all of our earthly treasures, and we cling to you. We are like those little children dependent on you to clean us, to feed us, to make us, God, into mature sons and daughters of the living God. We thank you for this opportunity that was purchased for us by your blood. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I want to just proclaim this benediction over you. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.